I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 15. I'm going to be reading for us verses 1 through 4. Revelation 15, 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, uh, beginning with chapter 15, we actually have the fifth of seven visions given to us in the book of Revelation. I can't take time to comment on the ones which have preceded, except to say we have seven churches, we have seven seals, we have seven trumpets, and then in chapters 12 through 14, there is a woman and a dragon and a man-child and two beasts and Babylon. And then when we come to chapter 15 and chapter 16, we have the seven bowls. Now, these seven bowls of wrath are, in fact, poured out throughout history. But there is a sense in which they are especially poured out at the very end of history in a very intense way. You notice, as I read uh, verse 1, that it says, These seven plagues are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. There's something final about the seven bowls of God's wrath. So they're introduced for us here in verse 1 of chapter 15, and then immediately they're followed by what I would call a, a brief interlude, verses 2, 3, and 4. Our minds are directed away from the walls of wrath to a sea of glass and a large group of people standing beside it with harps in their hands and singing a song. 
And then as soon as the interlude is over in verse four, we go right back to the vision of the seven bulls of wrath, which are poured out by the seven angels. And I want us to look for a few minutes this evening at this brief interlude found in verses two through four. It's a kind of parentheses in the midst of what otherwise would be a horrific judgment revelation. The terrible plagues that God inflicts upon the impenitent throughout history, but with special intensity just before the second coming of our Savior. These plagues are portrayed symbolically as a kind of liquid judgment. In fact, seven liquid judgments poured out of seven bowls containing the wrath of God for the impenitent. For the ungodly. Some of those bowls are poured out, one on the earth, one on the seas, one on the rivers, one on the heavens, and three more. But before they are revealed to the church, and the book of Revelation was written to us and to all true churches throughout history. Before these bowls of wrath are revealed, in all of their deadly, destructive fearfulness and horror, it is as if God says, but wait a minute. For those of you believers who may be fearful and apprehensive about the things that I'm going to do, let me just take a moment to show you who you actually are, and where you actually stand. In other words, God pauses in the midst of revealing these last and final plagues to say to the people of God, as it were, not to fear. They won't be poured out on you. I want to remind you who you are. And I want to remind you where you stand. This is something that happens frequently in the book of Revelation. And if I had time, I would take you um, perhaps to chapter 6 and show you the 144,000 who were sealed and made safe by God. The 144,000 represents the entire redeemed people of God throughout history. Or I would take you simply back to chapter 13 and show you that something very fearful happens at the end of chapter 13. And then immediately we go into chapter 14 and God tells us again about the 144,000. At the close of chapter 13, which we'll be looking at in a few moments, he tells us that the ungodly will come under the power of the beast and they will succumb to the pressure and the temptation of having his mark put upon their hands or their foreheads, which again is symbolic of coming under the pressure of humanism as it controls our thinking 
and humanism as it controls our actions. And we will see in a few minutes when we come back to this passage that those who refuse the mark of the beast in many cases are executed. They become martyrs. It's really pretty frightful. It's pretty sobering. And that's why immediately on the heels of that sobering revelation, God encourages his people by saying, but let me tell you who you really are, even if you do die for not refusing the mark of the beast. You belong to this company of people. And they, too, sing a song in chapter 14, and they, too, sing it with the accompaniment of harps. And the interesting thing about this song is revealed in verse 3 of chapter 14. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves and so forth. Um, There are songs that ungodly people can sing, but they don't know what they're singing. They have not learned the song. They may know the music, they may mouth the words, but they don't know the song. Only those who are truly redeemed by the blood of the Lamb can sing this particular song. But my whole point is to say that frequently in the book of Revelation, when fearful scenes are about to unfold, God pauses and he shows his true people how really safe they are who they are, and where they stand. And that's what's happening in verses 2 through 4 of our chapter tonight, chapter 15. Now, as John looked, and we see two times he uses the word saw, one in verse 1 and the second one in verse 2. And I'm interested in what he saw in verse 2. And I'd like to pose this question. What did he see? Actually, I'd like to reframe the question. As John looked and listened, what did he see and what did he hear? The answer is simple. Look at the text, verses 2 through 4. Actually, I haven't read this passage yet, have I? Let's read it. Then I saw, wait a minute, I was thinking I did. I guess I didn't. Then I saw another sign. Did I read it? Okay. Why'd you say no, Jonathan? Oh, okay. Well, I was hoping I could blame it on you. Um, In verse 2, we have an answer to the question. What did he see and what did he hear? Well, verse 2 says that he saw a, a sea of glass, which was mingled with fire. Uh, Symbolic, perhaps, of the holiness of God and the consuming wrath of God for sin and iniquity. But he saw this sea of glass. This sea of glass was found also back in chapter 6. But he also saw a massive choir. You say, I can't tell that it's massive from the text. You can't, but when you understand the text, you will know that it's massive. And I'll tell you why about that in just a moment. That's what he saw, a sea of glass 
and a massive choir and each member of the choir holding a harp in his hand, which had been given to him by God. It wasn't his harp. It was the harp of God. But what did he hear? He heard this choir singing a combined song. And no doubt they were accompanying their song with their harps. He wouldn't just say, here, hold this harp and sing, and then later set it down. It's obvious that the harps were designed to accompany the song, which, by the way, just as an aside, teaches us that accompaniment in music is um, not only acceptable by God, but prescribed by God. And I say that because there are those who would say we should never have musical instruments in the worship of God, only the vocal cords, only the larynx. That's not true. So they were playing their harps and they were singing the song. And John heard the words of the song. He, he heard them so clearly that he was able to quote them verbatim. The words of the song are in verse 3 and verse 4. And I could just make another uh, slight observation and that is, and this is something we believe in, that accompaniment should never drown out the human voice. Words should be heard and understood. And if, if our worship ever has an accompaniment that keeps us from hearing the words, we're going to have to tone it down. We have all been in places where you can't, you can't even hear what you're singing. You don't even know what the words are. We can hear what we sing, and, and we especially love it when occasionally Dave um, actually drops out all the accompaniment or backs it off, and we hear the words and the voices of one another. It's a very beautiful thing. So what's the answer to the question, what did John see and what did he hear? He saw a sea of glass, looked like it was mingled with fire. He saw a huge choir. I haven't proved that it's huge, but when you found out, find out who's in the choir, you'll realize it's huge. And he heard some things. He heard a song being sung by this choir and accompanied by harps. That's what he heard. Now, just a few more questions. My questions would be, who are the members of this choir? And can anybody sing in it? Could anyone join that choir? Were there tryouts? If so, what were the tryouts like? How could you qualify to get in this choir? Well, I'm going to answer that question by working backwards. Yes, there were tryouts. In fact, this choir, you have to uh, try out for your whole life before you can join it. And interestingly, to get in this choir, you don't have to have a pretty voice. There's no interest whatsoever in how well you can sing. To get in this choir, to pass the test, to go through the tryout, all you have to do is conquer the beast and his image and his number. Look at that in verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing behind 
beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing. How do you get in the choir? The only way you can get in this choir is to conquer the beast and his image and his number. Well, who's the beast? The beast is revealed in chapter 13 and verse 1, and I can't take the kind of time I would like to or that might be helpful you to prove this, but the beast is ungodly government persecuting the church. That's who the beast is who comes out of the sea. There's another beast in chapter 13 uh, who comes out of the land, and that's ungodly philosophy and religion, and they work together. The beast is godless, persecuting government, and its image is anything which represents that godless authority. What is the number of his name? The number of his name is revealed also in chapter 13 toward the very end. It says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of not a man. It is the number of man. There's no indefinite article. And his number is 666. That's the number of man. Seven is the number of God and perfection. Six is the number of man and imperfection. So what's that about? Real simply, it's about humanism. 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 Humanism is the religion that says we know what is right and wrong, not God. We will determine our ethics. We know what is best for society. We know what is best for marriages. We know what is best for children. We know what is best for everything. Humanism. So the mark of the beast isn't to be thought of as something literal that's going to be imprinted on your forehead or on your hand. This is all symbolic of humanism controlling our thinking and our worldviews and humanism controlling our actions. Well, what does it mean then to conquer the beast? It means to refuse this pressure, pressure to conform to the thinking and the ways of man and to refuse to do so at any cost and at all costs. Well, what might it cost? To refuse this mark of the beast. Your life. Your life. It might cost martyrdom. And anything lesser than that as well. I can show you that again from chapter 13. Look at verse 7. And it's speaking of this beast. And I'm suggesting to you that it represents godless Christ persecuting government. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. What does that mean, to conquer? How can the saints be conquered? Do true saints give up their faith? No, it can't be that. Read on. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation in the world in the book of life 
Ours have been if we're true believers. But people whose names have not been, it's just a way to describe unbelievers, godless people. It says, if anyone has ear, let him hear. An ear, let him hear. And then you have this little, this little statement. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. That's one of the prices that people pay for not receiving the mark of the beast. Imprisonment. Do you know how many Christians are in prison right now worldwide? I don't either, but it's massive. But it's, it gets worse than that. Look at the rest of the statement. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, must he be slain? No wonder the next words are, here's a call for endurance. And for the endurance and faith of the saints, it's going to take a lot of faith and perseverance to face those potentials in refusing the mark of the beast. But go on in chapter 13 and notice again in verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. We're talking about how to get in the choir, folks. The tryouts last for a whole life. And it comes down to this. Have you so pledged your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ that you refuse to be conformed to this world and particularly to receive those kinds of credentials which make <clears throat> life um, comfortable uh, without which life would be absolutely miserable? Again, in chapter 13, if you'll notice, verse 16, it says, Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that, here's what it costs, here's what it costs to get in the choir, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. It's costly to be a Christian. And the only way that you and I can qualify for the choir we're reading about in chapter 15 is by conquering the beast. Well, what about the song? <clears throat> and by the way, just, just to mention commerce, you know, I, we, I really shouldn't take us here, so I won't. I'll just let you listen to these words. And... Uh, Tell me if you think you know where they come from. Talking about believers. Talking about God's faithful. Others suffered mocking and flogging. And even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. That's what it cost to get in the choir. Well, let's look at this song for just a moment. Our time is slipping away quickly. What is this song called? Well, it's called 
the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Are these two songs? No. They're one song. You can't see any division in it at all. Well, then why the double name for the song? Because the theme of these two titles is the same. The theme of the song of Moses and the theme of the song of the Lamb could be summarized by me saying, It focuses upon the glory of God in redeeming his people. The glory of God as revealed in his redemptive works and ways and deeds. Now, what in the world is the song of Moses? Well, just go with me very quickly to Exodus chapter 15. Most of you know the answer to that already, but just see it. Exodus 15, immediately after... Pharaoh and his army were drowned in the Red Sea, which you'll see in verses 30 and following, 30 and 31. Actually, in verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry, dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And now we see them on the other side of the Red Sea. And we have in chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, the song of Moses. What's it about? It's about the glory of God. It's about the exercise of God's attributes on behalf of his people in redeeming them and delivering them. Well, why would the song of Moses be joined to the song of the Lamb? Many of you know the answer to that. It's because the song of Moses and the great deliverance of God's people out of Egypt and out of Egyptian bondage, even through the Red Sea, is a type. It is a foreshadowing of the greatest of all exoduses, the greatest of all deliverances, namely the one purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, which sets us free from the bondage of sin. And delivers us from the condemnation of God. And these two songs are so closely related that they're put together. And when we sing them, we'll sing them both. Because the latter song is rooted in the former. And the former song looks forward to the latter. That's why. Um, I just read for you what one of the commentators says. He says um, through the centuries that... Significant deliverance is recalled by the annual death of the Passover lamb and in the fullness of time following the death of the greater lamb, the real Israel is rescued and the real Egypt destroyed. The song of Moses and the song of the lamb are one and the same. It would be wrong to say that the exodus was the real deliverance while the cross and the resurrection were only the spiritual one. It would be truer to say that the spiritual deliverance by Christ is the real one, while the exodus was only foreshadowing it. So that's why these 
This song has a double name. Now, I'm just going to take one moment to say this and then draw my thoughts to a close tonight. As you look at that song, what's it about? This is worthy of your serious contemplation, meditation, memorization, and thought. I'm not going to do it any justice at all, but just look at the surface of this song. What attributes of God do you see in the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? Great and amazing are your deeds. Well, the deeds are great and amazing because the one who performed them is great and amazing. So we see something of the greatness and the amazingness of God. What else? We see that God is almighty. We were singing tonight, mighty to save. We sang that several times in that chorus. Mighty to save. So you see the omnipotence of God, and then you see the justice of God. Just and true are your ways. We see the truthfulness of God, and then we sing the sovereignty of God over the whole world and all of the nations. O King of the nations. And then we see that God is worthy to be feared. Who will not fear you? He's worthy of our reverence. He's worthy to be worshipped and glorified. We see that he is a God of holiness for You alone are holy. We see that he is a God of global redemptive purposes. All nations will come and worship you. We were considering in one of our Disciple You classes this morning the promise to Abraham. How that in him and in his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then we see... In the closing phrase of this song, that this God is a God of righteousness. Look at the attributes. Greatness, omnipotence, justice, truthfulness, sovereignty. Worthy to be feared. Holiness, righteousness. That's what it's focusing on. And all of these attributes go into action on the part of God in the redeeming of his people, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so that's what the song is about. Now, I I must conclude with these with these applications. The first thing I want to say to you just by way of encouragement is, dear uh, brother or sister in Christ. um, This choir is not actually singing right now, but it will be assembled. This is one of the choirs that is not singing in the book of Revelation because it's going to happen when we're gathered on the other side of the Red Sea. Notice the correlation. Two seas, one called the Red Sea, one looking like fiery glass. When we are raised from the dead, or if the Savior should come back before. And the judgment takes place. We will stand on the other side of the sea, and we will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and we will extol our great God for all of these attributes that went into action. So you're going to be in that choir. Secondly, I want to remind you that uh, we will conquer even if we are conquered. I don't know if you noticed that, but in 13.7, it said 
Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And yet when we come over to chapter 15, it says we conquered the beast. Well, who conquers whom? Does the beast conquer us or do we conquer the beast? The answer is yes. The beast might conquer us in terms of us giving up our lives. But in so doing, we conquer the beast. That's not that every Christian is going to die by martyrdom. The vast multitude of God's people conquer by resisting the mark of the beast and living a normal godly life. But depending on where they live, paying more or less for their faithfulness to God. So I'm not saying that you can't join the choir unless you're martyred. I'm saying you and I, by the grace of God, must live lives that refuse to receive the mark of the beast. That is, we refuse to submit ourselves to a humanistic view and practice of life in faithfulness to our Savior at whatever cost. And that's how we conquer. But I think it's ironic that some will conquer by being conquered. It's okay. He thinks he conquered. The devil also thought he conquered Jesus when he killed him. But in fact, he killed himself when he killed Jesus. While he, while he sought to bruise the heel of the Savior, in fact, the Savior was crushing his head. And so we too may appear to be conquered, but in fact, we are conquering. And the last thing I want to say is this. Appearances are deceptive. The church on earth seems weak. Doesn't it? It seems beleaguered. It seems outnumbered. It seems defeated. It seems hopeless sometimes. It seems such a minority. But it only seems so. It is, in fact, presently battering the gates of hell. It is a kingdom that conquers all other kingdoms. I wish I had time to take us to Daniel 2, but the little stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands comes rolling down the hill, and it smashes the kingdoms of the earth because it is a kingdom set up by God that will be everlasting, and it conquers all other kingdoms. And in this very book, we read about the day when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God and our Savior. That's the church that we belong to. That's the kingdom we belong to. Don't succumb to a worldly perspective on the true power and authority and victory of the church. That's what we are a part of. And I leave you with this. It's all because of the Lamb. And if you, you who listen to me tonight, have beheld the Lamb of God, remember what John the Baptist said, Behold, look, 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 the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you have looked savingly to this Lamb, you are in the choir. And it won't be long before together we'll be singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the victory of your people. We thank you for these perspectives that are designed to encourage us in a book which is very realistic about the war going on between the world and the church and between the dragon and the lion. And we thank you that we are a part of that army which will prevail. And we thank you that you are securing our salvation and that a day will come when we will stand on the other side of the sea and we will sing 
the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Help us to be faithful. Help us to see the little ways in which you are calling us to refuse the mark of the beast. We don't want to be obnoxious, but neither do we want to be cowardly. Help us to be firm where we should be firm. Give us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.